Good morning. Welcome to the online worship of First Chinese Baptist Church Walnut. Whether we gather in this place, a worship hall to worship together, or we scatter in our respective homes, the principle is still the same. We worship God in spirit and in truth. So I want to invite you today, really put your heart, pour your spirit into the worship of God, and may God be glorified in our worship. Psalm 18, verses 1 to 3 says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress, and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. Let us come together to continue to worship God, because He's our rock, He's our fortress, He's our deliverer, He's our God, He's our salvation. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that as we come together to worship you, that our, our hearts will be drawn into your presence and your glory will fill our hearts as we go through the whole process of the worship. Allow us to honor you, allow us to praise you, allow us to obey your word, and allow us to do your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning I have three announcements I want to make to you. First is the Annie Armstrong Easter Offering. I want to thank you for your generosity to support this ministry, which is from the Southern Baptist Convention, supporting 5,000 workers who are serving as church planters, chaplains in the military, campus ministry, and special needs. One church cannot do it, but together with the 48,000 Southern Baptist churches together, we can support them. Our church goal is $35,000. And so far, we have received 4147 So thank you for your support. Let us continue to give as the Lord allows us to support this ministry. I also want to thank you for your faithfulness in giving in the weekly donation. Um, we average about $27,000 after the coronavirus hit us. And before that, it's about 35000 weekly donation. So there's a dip of about 20% because I think some of, us, some, of us, some of us feel the financial crunch and the challenge of our lives. But we understand that. We just give as the Lord allows us to give. So thank you so much for giving faithfully. Uh, secondly, I want to give an update on the relief team. Uh, by God's grace, we assemble a relief team of about 50 or 60 people who sign up. Uh, many of you donated masks, food, uh, imperishable food items. Uh, we have collected many of them. And so far, by God's grace, uh, we have donated 4,836 masks to 13 healthcare facilities. We are grateful that we can be a blessing to them. So let's continue to donate and continue to give in the midst of coronavirus that we can be light and salt of the community. And thirdly, I want to encourage you to continue to join us in the online prayer meeting on Wednesday night. Uh, just click into the, the link and you'll be able to be a part of the prayer warriors that together we ask God and intercede for those who are in need and ask God to bless and to protect and to guide us throughout this process of crisis. Um, let me lead you in pastoral prayer together. Let us pray. Dear God, as we come together, we want to acknowledge your sovereignty even in the midst of crisis even in the midst of COVID-19 pandemic. Father, as we come together, we pray that you be glorified in our worship 
as we obey you, as we praise you, as we pray to you, as we give, as we put our hearts and worship you in spirit and in truth. Father, I pray for those who are infected that you will restore their health. I pray for the medical personnel who are on the front line that you will protect them to be healthy, to continue to provide services to those who are infected. Father, we pray for those who suffer economic loss. Lord, may you provide for them. And through the stimulus package, they can get some aid and support. We pray for those who are lonely, Lord, that you will come alongside them to journey with them together through this process. And others who are still anxious or fearful, Lord, may you embolden them, strengthen them, allow them to be courageous in the Lord. And we pray, Lord, that we will continue to see a flattening of the curve and the bending of the curve as the COVID-19 pandemic was slowly slowing down and we'll be able to get back to our lives. We pray that you will sustain our faith even though we can't gather together in the church, but even in our respective home, we are able to worship, walk with you, and be disciple makers of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Let us prepare our hearts to Hear God's word from Pastor Terrence. Greetings, SCBC Wallet family and friends. We are going to continue our journey through the Sermon on the Mount this morning, Matthew 7, verses 15 to 20. We're almost done. It is almost finished. And there's so many great words for us to hear from Jesus that calls us to exhortation to faith and also obedience to all that he has unpacked and revealed to us through these three chapters. Please join me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask, God, that you would open the eyes of our understanding today as we hear your word being proclaimed. We pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would help us to see with clarity and discernment all that is happening around us, but most importantly, the condition of our hearts. God, help us, especially through this COVID-19 crisis, Father, to be able to think through how it is, Lord, that we are following you through a narrow gate and also through a difficult way. Help us, Father, not to be distracted, but help us instead to grow in discernment and wisdom to be able to look around and see ways in which we can walk with you closer, but also to know ways in which we are being pulled away from you. And help us, Father, to obey what you have called us to do. Meanwhile, help us to be aware, Lord, of those around us and the teachings around us, Lord, that seem to meet our needs and to satisfy our wants, but ultimately does not help us to reach our destination of being an eternity with you in your kingdom. So God, speak to us today. Thank you, Lord, for today and the opportunity to hear your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're at the point now in the Sermon on the Mount where the sermon is actually already over. Jesus' teaching had concluded, but then we are now in this part where Jesus uses a series of contrasts to call the listeners in the crowd to obedience in everything that he has taught and also to help them to see the landmines and the ways in which they might be distracted from a faithful journey. There's three sets of contrasts that were listed and we're looking at the second one today, but the first was the two gates and the two ways. There was a narrow gate that led to a difficult way and then there was a wide and broad gate that led to a well-paved, well-traveled path. Jesus calls his followers to go through the narrow gate, one that might even be difficult to find, not very attractive, 
and then to continue on in this path, in this journey, that you cannot see the end and it doesn't look too friendly or comfortable, but yet it leads to eternity with him. And then he also points at the wide path to say that, you know what, this is a very simple and easy and comfortable path, but it ultimately leads to destruction. So those two contrasts are made and we're able to see that even Jesus, who in John chapter 10 calls himself the gate of the sheep, is telling us to follow him, go through him, and then to pursue him in this life's journey on this path. Now, the second set of contrasts we're going to look at today is going to be in verses 15 to 20, where we see two types of trees that produces two types of fruit. And the first thing that he begins with in verse 15 is a command. So let me go ahead and read that command to us. Jesus says this, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Wow, what a specific command. Beware of false prophets, those that are going to lead you astray, those that are saying a different message, those that are distracting you from your journey and your call. Beware of them. Be cautious. Carefully consider who they are and look for them in your midst. You know, as I read this passage, it just reminded me of the famous story, The Pilgrim's Progress, written by John Bunyan in the 1600s. This story that stars the main character of Christian Pilgrim and his family, they live in the city of destruction. But while he was there just doing the normal citizen thing, he comes across a book, and this book is the Bible, who tells him about a celestial city where there are streets of gold, where everything is perfect, and where there is a king who is present there in the relationship and in the proximity of the people. The evangelists then pointed him towards the city and called him to stay on the road and not venture off. There were many who tried to dissuade him on this road, and there were many objects and locations that aim to distract Christian from pursuing the celestial city. Along the way, he also carries with him a burden that's like a backpack that keeps growing heavier and bigger as he goes, and it was causing a lot of hardship and frustration to this weary traveler. So imagine this, that when Jesus says, beware of the false prophets, it would be like those in that story who were trying to lead and confuse and misdirect Christian away from the celestial city, but instead they were actually setting him back because he was meant to pursue God and pursue the king by going to that celestial city. When Jesus says beware, it implies that these prophets are near, that there's two prophets certainly in the community of people who are traveling together towards the celestial city, towards heaven, towards the fulfillment of the kingdom of God. There is the true prophets who will steer you in the right direction, who will give you advice and wisdom that will help you stay on course and persevere on the difficult way. What they will be sharing will be from the word of God and the wisdom that they will have will be informed and shaped by the spirit of God. However, there are also a second type of prophets, the false prophets, who will steer you away from following Jesus and distract you from finishing your journey. You know, so for those of you who have chosen the narrow way through Christ and 
the narrow gate through Christ and the hard way to follow him, it would be helpful to know who these false prophets are. And that's what makes me, um, when I think about Pilgrim's Progress, it always makes me smile because the characters in the places leave nothing to the imagination. They are named to reflect who they are. Let me give you some of the character names from Pilgrim's Progress. See, some of the good guys, their names are Christian Pilgrim, the main character, the evangelist, hopeful, faithful, and even prudence, which means wisdom. Such wonderful traits and virtues. The bad guys are named worldly wise men, for example, obstinate, legality, and I love this one, judge, hate good. Now, when I say bad guys, I'm not saying that they're bad guys in any other way in that, that they are people who are trying to take Christian away from his journey. And so when they represent that role, they are the bad guys and the names reflect that. Some of the places that present trials or distractions have names like this. Forbidden Forest, the Swamp of Despondency, the 24-hour-a-day, seven days a week fair party festival called the Vanity Fair, and even the Mountain of Morality. In fact, two paths are described just like chapter 7, 13, and 14, and their names are this. There's the Patience Path, and there's a Passion Passage. Imagine that, such graphic and clear ways to know what they represent. But see, these false prophets that Jesus is describing to the listeners, to the crowd, and to us, they're not so obvious. In fact, in verse 15, Jesus uses this metaphor of sheep and wolves to show how it is that the false prophets carry themselves. Now, these false prophets on the outside, they appear in sheep's clothing. Sheep are adorable. Sheep look harmless and docile. In fact, sheep might even be wonderful companions and helpful to walk with on this lonely and difficult journey down a narrow and difficult, hard way that Jesus has described. However, these false prophets are someone else on the inside. They are described as ravenous wolves or the arch enemies of sheep. Now, these would be people that appear to love God, to love the law and what is good. However, they are selfish and they want to ravage and take advantage of the flock of God for their own gain. So in light of the Sermon on the Mount, who Jesus is talking to immediately are the religious and leaders and scribes who keep the law superficially, but they do not love God or neighbors with their hearts. They're people that call out other people's sin, but do not address their own. They're people that proclaim knowledge or authority in scripture, but don't apply what they teach. Their intent then is to deceive and do harm to God's people. They're not innocent, nor are their teachings ambivalent or rosy. They don't have the traveler's best interest in mind. They are out to get the sheep, to get them off the path, and to destroy them. Since these false prophets are so dangerous, yet difficult to spot, how can we heed to Jesus' command to be cautious of them? Well, he goes on to tell us in verses 16 to 20. Now, he uses the metaphor of then trees and fruits to describe how we can know who the false prophets are. And before I go ahead and read the passage, I want to describe something to you of how Jesus 
teaches on this. He uses a literary device called a chiastic structure, where he lists ideas going forward one way, and then he mirrors them going backwards the other way. Let me give you an example. There's a very common saying, when the going gets tough, the tough gets going. You see that? The ideas are bookended, they work themselves in, and then they work themselves out. In Mark 2, 27, here's another example. Jesus says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You see that? The ideas work from the outside in, and as it goes going forward, it gets reversed going backwards. Now, let me read the passage to you with that in mind. There's three ideas that you'll find. Let me start with verse 16. Jesus said, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. There's three sets of ideas. Verses 16 and 20 is idea one. It'll work itself in to verse 16 and 19 is idea two. And then finally, verses 17 and 18 come together. It's the third idea that then Jesus states in two separate ways to make it abundantly clear how we can know who these false prophets are. I'm going to go ahead and take us through one idea at a time from the outside in. Please keep your Bibles in front of you. That would be very helpful. The first idea is this, and it's repeated in verses 16 and 20, that the false prophets can be recognized by their fruit. Now, what is a fruit as it relates to a tree? Well, the fruit is what a tree produces. It is then, as it relates to people, the actions and results of one's life. You've heard this saying as well, I'm sure. Actions speak louder than words. And so one's fruit is what people do and ultimately what they trust in as it reflects in how they live more than just what they say. So Jesus says that you can tell who the false prophets are by the fruit that they put on display in how they live. The second idea is in the second half of verse 16 and 19, and that is this, that bad trees such as thorn bushes and thistles, they do not produce good fruits such as grapes and figs. And what happens then to these bad trees is that they will be destroyed. Or as it relates to people, they will have no place in the kingdom of heaven. Now, this idea is pointing to something that the listeners would have been very familiar with. Professor Michael Wilkins said this about what was listed. Grapes and figs were the staple diet in Palestine, and thorn bushes and thistles were hurtful weeds. What did weeds do? Well, they choked up the good plants and they stole their nutrients. And so Jesus says this in the second idea, that those bad trees, bad bushes, they will be burned and destroyed and they do not produce good fruit. 
And that leads us then to the third idea, which is in the center, verses 17 to 18. The third idea is this, that there is a relationship between the kind of tree and the fruit that it produces. And Jesus says this in both ways, to be clear. He says it positively in verse 17. Every healthy tree bears good fruit, and every diseased tree bears bad fruit. It's a one-to-one. Good tree, good fruit. Bad tree, bad fruit. Now, in verse 18, he says this in the negative fashion or the opposite fashion. He says this in verse 18. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a diseased tree cannot bear good fruit. So it is impossible for one type of tree to produce the other type of fruit. Now, Augustine, famous church father and theologian, said this, The tree, of course, is the soul itself that is the person. And the fruits are the person's works. So a bad person cannot perform good works, nor can a good person perform bad works. Makes sense, right? Very intuitive, very simple. The parallel passage to the Sermon on the Mount for this particular teaching can be found in Luke chapter 6. And Jesus says in verse 45 this, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Jesus cannot be more clear. A clear line of demarcation is drawn. So if you want to produce good fruit, the only way you can do this is to become a healthy tree and have good treasure in your heart. Everything else falls short and becomes legalistic, superficial, and hypocritical regardless of how hard a bad tree tries to produce good fruit. So the fruit is related to the essence and the identity of the tree, then how does one become a healthy tree, you have to ask? Well, you have to change who you are from the inside out so that your heart's treasure is one that is good and healthy. You have to be transformed into a different type of tree. Jesus teaches us on how that is done. And it is done through repentance. I'm going to turn us to Matthew chapter 3 to look at a story where John the Baptist used the same metaphor of trees and fruits when speaking to the religious leaders while preparing the way for Jesus's ministry. So Matthew chapter 3 verses 7 through 12, the gospel says this, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees who are the religious leaders coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, you false prophets, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. 
Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. It sounds exactly like what Jesus just taught. John the Baptist goes on in verse 11. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Notice the center command and call and the plea that John the Baptist gives to the crowd. Repent, repent, because the kingdom of heaven is coming and the kingdom of heaven will be fulfilled in the Messiah, the Son of God, the suffering servant, the perfect teacher, Jesus Christ, who he is making the way forward to. And the only way that you can bear fruit, good fruit, which is what John the Baptist was exhorting those who are bearing bad fruit to consider, the only way to bear good fruit is to repent. So it is really important for us to look at what repentance looks like and how do you repent? What does it mean to repent and turn to God? That's such a Christian word sometimes, brothers and sisters, that we take it for granted as to what it looks like in our lives. But John the Baptist, as well as Jesus, points us to the need for a change of heart from the inside out in order to bear good fruit. Well, the good thing to begin with is that repentance is something that God gives. In fact, God gives us graciously and generously this heart to turn away from sin and to turn to God. In Romans 2.4, Paul says, it is God's kindness that leads sinners to repentance. And so if you're gearing to repent, if you want to change, if you want to be transformed and bear good fruit, ask him. Ask God to give you a heart of repentance. Ask him to soften your heart so your desire is for him and for him alone. But what does repentance look like? Well, in Psalm 51, 17, the psalmist describes that God accepts a state of heart always that is repentant. And this heart is one that is broken, and it is also one that is a contrite spirit. This is key because it addresses the heart and it goes beyond behavior. See, a broken heart and a contrite spirit means that deep down inside you actually believe and you're remorseful for having sinned against God and others. It is not just going to be fixed by a change of behavior or addressed by a desire not to be punished. But repentance is fueled and repentance begins when there's a desire for a relational reconciliation with God. 
a desire for intimacy with your Heavenly Father. Then that soft heart of flesh that God gives you will call you to make peace and to pursue reconciliation with others, which is the fruit that comes out of repentance. It's this desire to make things right with God, whatever it takes, but then also knowing that you can't fix anything. And that's why you need God for everything and why God is the one that receives the glory even when you feel and then express and live out repentance. Repentance leads to actions that bear fruit. The prophet Joel in chapter 2, 12 and 13 describes the call that Yahweh gave to his people. He said this, The Lord called Israel to return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend or tear your hearts and not your garments. You see, what he described are all these actions that physically portray repentance. But notice how the verse ends. Tear or rend your hearts and not your garments. It doesn't mean that you don't do things that show repentance, but it always begins with your heart. That if you are not remorseful and sorry for sinning against God and with others, any act that you do is not bearing the fruit of repentance. Now this has us turning, facing Jesus. Because Jesus is the gate of the sheep, as it is described in John 10. Jesus is trustworthy and true. When we repent and turn towards Jesus, we do so because, as the song says, Jesus is strong and kind. And there's no relationship worth pursuing and reconciling and making right more than for us to repent from our sin and to turn and put our faith in Christ. Just even looking at the Sermon on Mount, here are some reflections that you can glean about who Jesus is. Jesus is the Messiah. He is God's anointed one who came into the world to fulfill the old covenant law, but then he ushered in the new covenant with his sacrifice on the cross and resurrection from the dead. Jesus is the teacher who speaks with greater authority than any earthly religious leader or scribe because he is the king of the Jews that the scriptures have been pointing to, who is worthy of all worship and now sits at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is the good and true prophet who combated the lies of Satan with the powerful words of God. He never stumbled to his temptations, yet he overcame and persevered on the narrow and hard way, clinging and anchoring his life on the truth and the promises of God's word. Jesus is the Son of God who reconciles rebellious creatures to their creator through bearing the punishment for our sin so that we can be sons 
and daughters of our Heavenly Father through Jesus, the door, the gate of the sheep. He then calls us to follow him on this lifelong journey on a narrow and difficult way towards heaven, the celestial city. Repentance, when geared and turned and spent towards Jesus in his direction, through his gate, down his way, is how we can be transformed in the power of the Holy Spirit to become a good tree that bears good fruit. As followers of Jesus, we are on a pilgrimage for which the current COVID-19 crisis is an increasingly stretched out stop on the journey in the road that God has ordained for us so that we can grow as followers of Jesus, households of faith and family of God. I want us to consider different ways in which maybe the culture and the church and our households that we had came from, what were the priorities, what were the values from that culture that now is being challenged and being shifted and being considered in this quarantine era in which we're in our homes, in which we work from home if we have jobs that we're able to work in which we're not able to go anywhere, in which we are distant from our friends physically, but yet maybe there's new opportunities socially more than ever before. What are things that maybe are along the lines of distracting teachings or truths or values that we just took for granted? Notice I say truths, not that it's the truth, but what we think is a truth that has guided our hearts in the past that now are being challenged. And I want to bring up three. The first is it relates to you personally as a follower of Jesus, or just as somebody in this world. Something that is being challenged now is this idea that being busy is being better than being bored. You know, now we have, for the most of us, even if we have a lot to do, we have a simpler pace of life. So is it really that bad that you have the room at times or you feel bored and that your life is now so simple in the same places with the same people? Is that so bad? Well, maybe it's not. If the goal is to continue to grow and to prepare ourselves for a lifelong journey towards heaven with Jesus ahead of us. You know, a lot of times the excuse that we give for not doing anything to grow in our walks with Jesus, whether it's in reading the Bible or praying or reflecting or journaling or even just being silent and quiet and thinking about who God is, reading our Bibles and other books, or just even engaging in conversations with others that are meaningful or teaching our children, or speaking to our spouses. It's just that we don't have time. We're not in the same place at the same time. Our schedules don't lend us to such intentional conversations and actions. But now that excuse is gone. What we have now is this sense of boredom, perhaps, but it is an opportunity 
for you to now lead your schedule in a way that reflects your priorities rather than just being pulled everywhere, even when you're in the same location at times. I think of that even on Friday nights and Sunday mornings at church for us, that we could be in the same location and yet be so far from each other. Now, instead of complaining about boredom or thinking that that's bad, we can choose to be Christians and followers of Jesus, small steps, one at a time, but consistently, instead of just being busy doing Christian things. And though this new pace of life might allow you to do things you've never done before. Play outside, learn a new hobby, do something different. All that is worth it. And all that can be helpful in your journey in following Christ. Psalm 46.10 says this, Be still and know that I am God. And this is what we have the privilege of dealing with right now and wrestling with. That being bored is not so bad because it can be a catalyst for us to be strengthened on this journey. Well, here's a second idea that I want to challenge. That having things easy or convenient is better than something that requires a lot of effort or is difficult. Having something that is easy is better than something that is hard. That's the idea I want to challenge second. You know, this draws a distinction then, especially if you're talking about going down a narrow gate, down a hard way. It contrasts comfort versus purpose. Because just because something is difficult doesn't mean that it's not worthwhile. And this is something that we get to consider now more than ever. You know, a couple weeks ago, uh, there was a post, there was a video, an article written about this Asian American doctor in New York, how he is straddling this fence of both going to work and being faithful and being celebrated for being a hero. But yet on the other hand, he is doing something that is dangerous and makes his parents worry. And along the way, he talked about encountering some racist remarks as well, even as, as he is risking his life at points to be a healthcare provider in the city of New York, where is the epicenter of the coronavirus for the United States. What keeps him going is purpose. And I couldn't help but think the irony of how so much of our culture has been gearing our children, ourselves, down such a path of, let's say, medicine or business or law, where it's worth pursuing because it gives an easier life. It's more comfortable. You get to have more things and maybe the schedule is friendlier and you don't have to work as hard. Yes, there's schooling. Yes, people are very well-trained and they're very capable. And I praise God for those who are gifted and who are trained and are in those areas. But when we're looking at the hearts, sometimes the reasons why our parents geared us in those directions or even our own reasons for pursuing such lines of work are ones that lean towards what is easier versus what is difficult as it relates to living this life. Well, now when the parents are uncomfortable because their son's life is in danger, you see that what keeps them going and what they have to cling to is that what he is doing is worth it. And indeed it is because God 
uses him to save physical lives. Now let's bring it closer to home. Let's bring it closer to your home, especially if you have kids in your home. You know, the last few weeks we have been worshiping online and each week our, we're trying to, you know, figure out how to do things better. And maybe some of you guys this week are watching, you know, on Facebook with us because we're now streaming the service at the same time as worship so that we're able to communicate and, and uh, interact with each other more. It's a work in progress. You know, we're not the fastest, but we're working on it every week. But some of the responses that I've gotten since this COVID-19 crisis is, oh man, you know, this works for us. You know, we're at home, you know, uh, you know, we don't have to, you know, get up too early. We don't have to drive. We could be in our PJs, drinking my coffee. You know, I have, you know, my iPad on one hand, my coffee in the other hand, my remote, ready to go. You know, kids just barely were out of bed and we're just glad to get them there. And then we get to finish and then we transition right to dinner or I mean, lunch could be dinner and no problem. You know, we could roll with this as long as our internet doesn't cut out on us. But you know what? Let's challenge that idea of easy versus difficult. Let's challenge that idea based on the fruit that it produces. Don't get me wrong. We are trying to do everything we can to make sure that you have the tools and the resources to worship together. And now, especially in your homes, intergenerationally. But let's not forget that all this is in between the opportunity that we have again to see one another face to face. You know, the struggle to get your family up and out, to prepare them the night before, to have their Bibles, to be punctual, to go to the right rooms, to communicate and interact with each other, to maybe have homework done in advance for Sunday school, to, you know, pay attention, to physically train yourself, to put away your phones. All of that is worth it. It's difficult, but it is worth it if the object of our worship and adoration is God. It's worth it. The struggle is real, but the struggle is worth it because we're on this narrow road. In fact, after COVID-19 is over and we start becoming released back to the opportunities to gather publicly, my heart's desire is to see you face to face. It might be a while before I can give you a fist pound or give you a hug, but I want to see you face to face. I want to worship with you. I want to hear the voices. I want to hear the echoes and the responses to the preaching. I want to greet you. I want to give you a smile. That is representative of the church gathered. Right now, we are the church scattered and we'll make do the best that we can to continue to be fed, to continue to be faithful, to continue to gather together in our homes. But let's not forget, what bears fruit is the struggle, not just what is convenient. Finally, here's the third idea that I want to consider. This idea of being online is better than being personal. Now, this has connection to the last idea, but now I want to speak to church's family, our entire congregation. Recently, the LA County guidelines have told us that if you go outside, you should wear a face mask. It's, it's a habit that some of us are getting used to, uh, still working on, um, you know, guilty. You know, I'm working on it. I, I, I get, you know, I get forgetful sometimes. You know, how we see one another as a church family should be one 
that crosses our minds when we see one another in a face mask in person is that, oh, I can't wait until that mask is gone. I can't wait until we can see each other face to face. There should be a longing for us to gather and want to be together. And everything we do as the church scattered is supposed to gear us and prepare us for the church together. These are ways in which we need to consider during this time. And this is also how the discernment and the call to beware of false prophets comes into play. Because some advice, some wisdom might seem like great ideas, but they are not. And that it steers us away from our ultimate goal of pursuing Christ every day of our lives. So here's the big idea. Keep your eyes on Jesus and repent regularly that your life may bear good fruit, which lasts forever. Again, today's big idea. Keep your eyes on Jesus and repent regularly that your life may bear good fruit, which lasts forever.